1: Hi, listeners, and welcome to the New Books Network's special series, New Books and Celebration Studies. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Timothy Larson about the Oxford Handbook of Christmas, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. The Oxford Handbook of Christmas provides a comprehensive interdisciplinary account of all aspects of Christmas across the globe, from the specifically religious to the purely cultural. The volume provides authoritative treatments of a range of topics from the origins of Christmas to the present, decorating trees to eating plum pudding, from the Bible to contemporary worship, from carols to cinema... From the Nativity story to Santa Claus, from Bethlehem to Japan, from Catholics to Baptists, from secularism to consumerism. So, Christmas is not just a modern holiday, but has been an important feast for most Christians since the 4th century, and a dominant event in many cultures and countries for over a millennium. The Oxford Handbook of Christmas provides an invaluable reference point for anyone interested in this global phenomenon. So our guest today, Dr. Timothy Larson, is McManus Professor of Christian Thought at Wheaton College. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Celebration Studies.
0: I'm very pleased to be here.
1: Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So before we dive into the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
0: I'm a historian. I did my B.A. in history all the way through, did a Ph.D. in history But for kind of quirky reasons, I ended up teaching in a theology department, and I've gotten more and more theological as well as historical. I actually was recently awarded a doctorate of divinity in theology from the University of Edinburgh. So I now have two doctorates one in history, one in theology. And then, even more quirky, I got into the history of anthropology. And so now I'm a fellow of the Royal Anthropological Institute uh, in the United Kingdom, and I go to a lot of anthropological conferences. And I'm saying all that to say I think this volume is a very interdisciplinary one, and you have to kind of enjoy and think about lots of disciplines, and that's really playing to my story and my background and my strengths.
1: Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking about that, how much that resonated um, in the breadth of the volume. Um and speaking of which, that transitions essentially well to my next question. So for you and for everyone else that worked on this, what was it like compiling this volume?
0: I enjoyed it enormously. I actually chose this because I thought, what is the happiest thing I could think about thinking about for a few years? And I decided, wouldn't it be fun to spend my time uh, reading about and thinking about Christmas? And to edit a big volume, to edit any volume, is, I think of it as like, Um, putting on a really good dinner party. You're trying to think of interesting guests who will together make a really exciting event. And so for me, I just go hunting for interesting scholars. I think who is somebody who really has the training and the voice to say something interesting about this aspect of Christmas and then to put them all together and create this big dinner party. For the contributors, I think it was kind of like my reaction. Many of them said to me, you know, I've been turning down um, people offering me to write things recently, but I just so love the idea of thinking about and writing about Christmas that I'm going to say yes to your idea. So I think it kind of hit people at a moment when they were just like, yeah, let's think about something cheerful and good. Uh, And Christmas sounds like a lovely diversion. And so they came on board
1: yes as soon as I you know heard about the book I also had the same reaction I was like oh my gosh I have to check out this book about Christmas <laughs> and I love the comparison about a dinner party I think that's spot on you know you kind of see who's at the table and you you know the different attendees are in conversation with one another um, and I think you see that you know from chapter to chapter how complimentary um, all of it is within this, actually broad scope of Christmas, you know. Um, and then, you know, as you were working on this with everyone, what were some of the goals that you had for this handbook?
0: Yes, some of them are kind of what you would expect. I really wanted to be as comprehensive as possible. I tried to think of every aspect of Christmas and make sure that it had a place in the volume and that it'd be authoritative, that you could trust the information, that I found scholars who really knew how to do their work well and had the background and training to really understand their subject matter. But I think in addition to those pretty obvious things about what you'd want from a good book like this, kind of a, a hidden goal of mine or a more distinctive goal of mine was I wanted the tone to be uh, respectful and not snide. Christmas scholar scholarship is kind of strange because a lot there's a lot of kind of debunking kind of scholarship out there that kind of enjoys... Tearing apart people's traditions and showing them that they're not what they think, or they have dubious origins, or whatever. And I told all the contributors, I said, if this tradition is meaningful to anybody, they enjoy doing it, then you need to show respect for that fact. Doesn't mean that you don't um, offer critical scholarship and show what's true about things, but always keep in mind that if this is something that means something to somebody, it's worthy of being handled with the care of their joy and delight in that tradition.
1: Yeah. And I think it definitely comes across as that, um, especially as you kind of get into the more localized, I guess, manifestations of um, Christmas traditions. So I think that definitely um, came through in some of the, you know, latter sections of the uh, volume. So I think that's a really interesting um, way of thinking about it. And I, and I imagine that comes from, your background of uh, your interdisciplinary background, being able to kind of think that way. Um, if that makes sense. So speaking of which, uh, you know, alongside yourself, what other, you know, fields of study are represented in this handbook? Oh,
0: so many. And I think that's, again, what makes a certain kind of scholar, uh, be able to do this or not be able to do this because you're not just thinking in your own discipline. You have to be able to coordinate lots of disciplines. So I mentioned for myself, history, theology, anthropology, all those are in there, but so is biblical studies, Christian ministry and liturgy, a lot of literary studies, a lot of musicology, sociology, some legal studies, art history, film studies. Uh, So yeah, it was quite a, a, a full Kind of, you know, campus full of professors to pull together to talk about this.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it sounds like it was a lot of work in a good way um, to kind of get the breadth of this volume um, pulled off in that way. Yeah. Um, And so now that we've kind of established some, you know, general things about the book, let's kind of dive into maybe more of the book's content for a little bit, maybe going section by section. So starting with the first one, the first set of chapters, primarily about the history of Christmas, um, can you tell our listeners about some through lines that we see over the course of those history chapters, or in other words, in the various time periods that are represented there?
0: Sure. One thing that comes to mind is what is the arena for celebrating Christmas? And there are essentially three arenas that are always in play one is the church, the second is public space, the outdoors, neighborhoods, and the third is domestic, the home. And in every part of history, all three of those arenas are being used to celebrate Christmas, but they wax and wane. Uh, and how important they are relative to each other. So I think it begins very much as an ecclesial holiday, thinking about going to a church service to remember the birth of Christ. But in the medieval and the early modern period, there's this very strong outdoor public strain. Um, we we still have that a bit with going caroling door to door, but there's a lot of outdoor celebration, maybe even fireworks or shooting off guns, kind of rowdiness, public rowdiness in a way that we don't think about Christmas very much anymore, although Christmas still has outdoor aspects for it. uh, But in the modern period, especially starting in the 19th century, the home has really become where most people think that most Christmas activities are located. And so that's become the dominant one. Even people who go to church regularly often don't go to church on Christmas Day where in the past people who didn't go to church regularly often still did go on Christmas day, even if that Christmas day was a, you know, a Tuesday or a Wednesday, not a Sunday. So that's one of the things that got me thinking about anyway, uh, looking at the history and the big sweep was where do we celebrate and where's the focus of that?
1: Right. For sure. Um, You definitely see some of those resonances today. Um, And In the next section, you kind of shift gears more to theology, um, of course, with Christmas. So in that set of chapters, what do we learn about, of course, the Old and New Testaments, but specifically as well, uh, Jesus and Mary in that area?
0: Yeah, so of course, the Old Testament is Christians looking back on the scriptures uh, of the Jewish community and finding things that connect uh, to the story that they um, know through the gospel. Uh, so even in, in the start of Isaiah, there is an ox and an ass in a in a kind of verse that Christians would would say, ah, oh, look at this! It looks like a nativity scene to us because there it is, even in Isaiah. Uh, in the New Testament, I think there's kind of two different levels. One is the very specific detail. Uh, so Luke is great at that. You have uh, you know, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Uh, I just find that so interesting because swaddling is not a, a very common practice in our culture today, but it, it was a, a very common practice uh, in the ancient world. And so you have this kind of very specific action that Mary does for how she responds to the baby and, and handles the baby when he's first born. And then, of course, lays him in a manger, this fascinating detail of using a feeding trough as the place for him to lie down. Uh, but then John's gospel is very um, theologically abstract and sweeping. That In the beginning was the word. He was the light. The light came into the darkness. And so you have this kind of uh, great theological drama happening uh, of redemption, redemptive history, rather than this very specific contingent detail uh, driven story that Luke is giving.
1: Right. Um, I was going to ask about the section two. What are maybe some things that are debunked in this section that might surprise people, I guess.
0: In the section on the biblical studies, is that what we're still talking
1: about? Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the the great riddle is about the census. The census does not line up with what we know about Roman history. And so that chapter um, lays out the different theories of what Luke could be talking about and what it could mean. He doesn't mean a big obvious census, or if he does, he's confusing that. Uh, So, you know, we know we've had a census this year uh, when the census happens. Um, And so somebody looking back on American history could say, no, that wasn't a year of a census. We know when, when the census happened. Uh, so there seems to be something quirky going on with Luke's grounding this story in a census. Uh, and so it was fun to hear the different theories about uh, what he might have been thinking or how it might have connected to some more um, minor or local event than the one that we would imagine. Um, anyway, that's one idea that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, I found that interesting because, you know, I grew up in the Christian church uh... And I remember hearing that, you know, um, and I just never realized how comp- like complicated that could be, uh, something like the census, you know? Um, so I thought that was definitely an interesting uh, layout of that, for sure. And overall, I think with the whole volume, there were a lot of things that, you know, were interesting to read about and, you know not debunking per se, but complicating rather, you know, some of these different aspects of Christmas, um, you know, that a reader might not be aware of. So I thought that was kind of an interesting approach that readers might find, um, throughout the volume, even apart from just the section. So, um, speaking of, uh, you know, people and whatnot. Going on to the next sub chapters, you kind of dive in then specifically to the people, um, specifically, as you call it, worshiping communities. So, how do you see, um, or what are some differences that you see in terms of how people worship during Christmas? I know, like for instance, uh, my experience has always been you get a candle, you go to a Christmas service. You sing along uh, to hymns and, you know, hear a sermon about the nativity story and then you go home, you know, um, and that's, you know, a contemporary context. But what are some different aspects that are observed in this section?
0: Yes, one of the interesting things to me is how Christian communities end up borrowing or stealing ideas from one another. So you have very distinct traditions, but then they become less distinct because people get jealous of them and start taking them. Uh, one of the biggest differences that still exists today is that Russian Orthodoxy follows the Julian, uh, Julian calendar rather than the Gregorian calendar. So they agree that December 25th is the date of Christmas, but in their calendar, it falls where uh, January 6th is in our calendar. So that would be, to me, in the worshiping communities where you get a really big difference uh, between communities. But the Roman Catholic Church uh, had a tradition of the three masses over the course of Christmas Eve. And that's a lovely, distinctive tradition that was very uh, strong in the medieval period and still exists. But lots of Protestant churches started having uh, midnight uh, carol services as well on Christmas Eve, even calling them midnight masses, where usually they would say that mass was a Catholic word that we don't use, but it sneaks in for the Christmas Eve service. And you have Protestants who even say, our, we're having our midnight mass service on Christmas Eve. Uh, the Anglicans yeah. admitted. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Uh, yeah. Anglicans, <laughs> <laughs> the Anglicans admitted a lovely service uh, called uh, Lessons and Carols or Nine Lessons and Carols which is maybe a bit what you were describing, uh, where there's a rotation between biblical readings from both the Old and New Testament that kind of tell the sweep of salvation history with carols sung in between them. And it's become enormously popular service. It gets broadcast on the BBC. Uh, The famous place that it comes from is King's College in Cambridge. And again, lots of other Groups have then uh, kind of taken that template and made it their own. The Catholics were the ones who really emphasized the manger scene. That was a very Catholic distinctive to have a manger scene set up, but then Protestants started doing it because it looked fun. Uh, Catholics thought of Christmas trees as very Protestant, uh, but eventually they thought they looked fun and started using them as well. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So what I've noticed is that Christmas is a time for sealing other people's good ideas. uh, And the worship begins as meaning one tradition, but it becomes other traditions property over time as well.
1: Yeah. Have you yourself, I I guess, attended like different forms of these, you know, worship, you know, firsthand, or have you mostly studied it from a distance?
0: Yes, some of both. I actually uh, love a midnight mass service. And I remember going uh, staying with my in-laws who live in Scotland and Scotland uh, has a very Protestant past and my father-in-law is very Protestant and he was pretty grumpy about me wanting to go to a midnight mass uh, and didn't think that was a good idea at all um, but I thought it was a lovely way to start uh, the Christmas day by again as you mentioned just beauty of the candles in the dark at night and the singing that whole overlay of The light coming into the darkness is what that service is about. And I have found it uh, beautiful and lovely, even though I'm a Protestant myself.
1: Yeah, it's really neat. Um, I uh, have been to Midnight Mass a couple of times um, visiting family as well. And it definitely is interesting to kind of almost be You know, I'm an ethnographer and I feel a little bit like an ethnographer (laughs) going to different types of uh, services. So it's really interesting to, like you said, kind of see where those influences are kind of punted back and forth, you know. Um, And I guess the other thing I was thinking about, too, is in from what you might expect, how do you see worship maybe during Christmas potentially shifting this year I mean, is there, obviously there's a lot more online presence, but what are some things that you've been seeing that you think will influence Christmas worship services?
0: That's a fascinating question. A a lot of churches put on big extravaganzas for the Christmas season where they pack people in for some, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but almost like showbiz quality kind of service. Uh, There are, you know, Singing Christmas trees, and there are all of these kind of things that churches have become famous for having this extravaganza every Christmas. And some of them are canceling them altogether this year. Some of them are um, turning them online. So I think that it is like so much else a time to kind of think through what can we still do, what can't we do, what can we do in a new form. But as I said, Christmas has already tilted. Uh, much more heavily towards the home as being its space anyway, even for people that are very devout. I think it's a mistake to think of that as secularization. Um, Passover, for example, is a very domestic um, festival, and it's a very sacred festival, but it's a sacred festival that's based in the home. And so I think in some ways this year, more than ever, people will be thinking about how they celebrate Christmas at home. And... A little less connected to their wider ecclesial community.
1: Right. And we'll come back to some discussions of our present moment um, as it relates to Christmas in a little bit. But I just was thinking about that while we were specifically worship practices um, while we were talking about it. Um, and then going back to uh, the next book section, you know, you can't talk about Christmas without discussing a nativity story, right? Which is the focus of. The next section after the worship one. Um, so, what might people be surprised to learn about the nativity story um, in this section?
0: I think what's interesting is how deeply it intersects with political and social issues of our time, and how that has become more and more fascinating to lots of people. So, you can look at. Uh, Mary and Joseph, the Holy Family, as homeless people. There's no room for them in the end. They have to be where the animals are. And so there's been a surprising connection between thinking about the Holy Family in relationship to the problem of homelessness. And then after the birth, uh, they go into exile in Egypt because of Herod's decree. And so you also see them as immigrants, uh, people who have been forced to flee persecution and leave their country and be displaced. And so people have reflected on that more and more, that aspect of the story. Uh, And then Herod slaughters the innocents. And so you have this horrific reality of uh, violence and death. Uh, It it occurred to me uh, kind of quite suddenly and and movingly uh, that the Sandy Hook shooting in the elementary school had actually happened during Advent. And so we live in a world where there still is slaughtering of innocence. And so I've seen through doing this book more and more people making these connections and thinking about the political and social implications of the nativity story.
1: Right. And I was thinking about, you know, the earlier this year, black lives matter and that similar kind of questioning, you know, of what does slaughtering look like um, and whatnot. I think people can definitely uh, find like you're saying resonances in even this story. So it's a really interesting um, point, too. Um, And then going on to the next section, there's also a lot of resonances with this today, too. And I think this next section goes back to what you were saying about kind of presenting the way different people you know, celebrate Christmas, you know, really kind of on different terms. And it's the tradition section that kind of comes off as folkloric aspects of Christmas, meaning anything from food to trees to myths. So what are some traditions discussed in this section uh, that stand out to you?
0: Certainly, uh, for me, one of the most interesting things is really thinking carefully about Santa Claus. So he's obviously a very large tradition uh, for Christmas celebration now. And partly what interested me is because a certain kind of Christian, some of which are close relatives of mine, worry that Santa Claus has secularized Christmas and that he's like this secular rival to Jesus and is destroying the holiday for what it's meant to be, the true meaning of Christmas. And what I realized uh, as I got more and more into the research and as my other scholars did their work and I read it was how deeply Christian the origins and promotion of, of the fame of Santa Claus is. Then uh, the name Santa Claus obviously is a um, a kind of vernacular uh, spin on St. Nicholas. And so that's a longer tradition we could talk about if you're interested, in St. Nicholas. But in the specific Santa Claus, Um, from the poem T'was the Night Before Christmas uh, by Clement Moore, and he was a professor of Bible at a seminary. Um, And right through the 19th century, from that point onward, you have, uh, if you wanted to buy a Santa Claus outfit, the only place you could buy it from was a religious supplies company, just like you were buying communion cups or church choir robes. And if you wanted to meet Santa Claus in person, the only place you could meet him was at Sunday school. Children met uh, Santa Claus in Sunday school for decades and decades before he ever started showing up in department stores. So it was fascinating to see that, well, actually, it was the churches who really promoted Santa Claus and made his fame go uh, far and wide. And I came to think about uh, the fact that Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter six and the Sermon on the Mount says that if you want to give in a Christian way, you should give secretly. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep it anonymous. And St. Nicholas was famous for giving anonymously. And then people began to give in his name as a way of giving anonymously. And so I think Christians liked Santa Claus because to give the way that Jesus told Christians to give is to be a secret Santa, to find a way to do it without your name being attached to it. So it was anyway an interesting kind of little journey for me to think through where Santa Claus comes from and and how his fame spread so widely through the churches.
1: Yeah, and um, you were starting to at the beginning you were talking more about the like Saint Nicholas himself. Um, what were you wanting to explore there?
0: Yeah. So what he is famous for is taking bags of gold and throwing them through a window at night again secretly anonymously uh because there were three girls in this family who were going to be sold into slavery if they did not get a dowry and the by the he did it for the first girl and then the second girl and for the third one they were on the watch because they're like what is going on with these bags of gold coming through the window and they caught him but the point was that he didn't want to take credit for it. He didn't want to be able to say, look, I'm your benefactor. He just wanted to help them without drawing attention to himself. And so that was what inspired people's imagination. He became one of the most popular saints in the medieval period. He's so beloved. So many churches are dedicated to him across so many different nations. And eventually some French nuns thought, we want to help the poor, but we don't want to take credit for it. What if we gave gifts to the poor And just wrote a note that said, from St. Nicholas. And it was exactly the right idea. We've been inspired by Nicholas. We don't need to take credit for it. Um, And so that's how it gets going and going. And so St. Nicholas to Santa Claus is all about a tradition of giving gifts without taking credit for it.
1: Right. And I uh, have seen kind of some or been looking into some rituals, I think, that kind of are also spin-offs of that like bell snickling. Yes. Um that kind of thing where it it's really interesting to see how it manif that idea of gifting manifest um in the vernacular, I guess, in that way. Um the other thing I want to ask you too about this section is have you tried any of the foods that are discussed?
0: <laughs> so we do try um some things sometimes. Um This is kind of like uh, shifting on the border between foods and games. Uh, But there's a Victorian tradition called Snapdragon where you take dried fruit and you put it in a bowl of brandy and you set it on fire. And the game is you have to reach into the flames very quickly and pull out the fruit and then eat it. And the point of it was it's a bit hot and tricky and so it's kind of fun to watch people kind of trying to be brave and, and making it and and uh, what happens to one another if you drop something or not. So my family did do this, uh, I think, two years ago, and it, and it, and it still worked. It was still uh, entertaining and caused us all to laugh a lot and have a good time together.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. It's definitely both entertainment and, um, you know, still an edible form of entertainment. (laughs) Um, Speaking of entertainment, that actually leads really well into the next section, which kind of looks at, you know, um, the different art forms of Christmas, anything from music to poetry to film. And of course, being a musicologist, I have to tease out music in particular here. So I found it, for instance, uh, interesting, particularly the first two chapters about the development of what you know, is often designated on like Spotify and whatnot as Christmas music broadly, but defined. And, you know, looking at particular in the second chapter of the section, you know, how do you see, or how have we seen the sacred and secular quote unquote Christmas music change over the course of the 20th century in the U S and in this genre, where do the sacred and the secular meet?
0: Oh, what a fascinating question.
1: So we have
0: a radio station here in Chicago that calls itself The Light. And throughout the regular rest of the year, it just plays standard uh, pop hits, contemporary hits with a few uh, kind of, you know, classic rock and easy listening songs thrown in. But it's the station in the Chicagoland that switches to all Christmas music. Uh, usually around, uh, you know, just a couple days into November, it goes all Christmas music. And that fascinates me that here's like you have a loyal audience of contemporary pop. And then all of a sudden you can hear a carol written um, centuries ago being played on this pop station over this special time of the year. So that that chapter on the 20th century is fascinating because what he argues, Todd Decker is the uh, musicologist who wrote that chapter, is that we've actually kind of reached this stable canon of pop Christmas songs that you play there. And it's kind of like um, solidified. And so it's this strange moment where, where a song that was a hit in 1942 is also a hit every year again uh, for these few weeks or two months uh, of November and December. And those Songs get played on pop stations, and they might have uh, very explicitly religious lyrics about the Son of God, about Jesus Christ, about salvation. But of course, they are also uh, mingled in with uh, lots of romance songs and what he calls Blue Christmas songs and songs about gifts and what you want and uh, more kind of commercial money aspects. So, yeah, I think it's a fascinating time where you have literally the sacred and the secular, you know, back to back within a few minutes of each other on a normally secular radio station and still secular. And yet there's these religious themes that get into popular culture in a way that I can't think of uh, of another example of uh, besides this time of year.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We have a radio station here in Tallahassee that actually does something like that year round. So they play basically hits from all the 20th century and 21st. So they're kind of, you know, an all around the pop music station. And then on Sunday mornings, they will switch to uh, quote the genre of Christian music, basically. And so they kind of do that, you know, on a regular basis. So of course, now they've switched to, you know, Christmas music. Um, quite a bit as well so i thought that was an interesting i've never seen a different station do that you're right outside of christmas but that's one i've i think out of everywhere i've lived the only station i've seen do that (laughs) Mm. switch six or seven days a week uh mainstream pop then on sundays they switch to uh christian music so yeah i think it is an interesting you know overlap I know like for instance this year um the latest song that I've become aware of is um one entitled hallelujah and it's by uh Carrie Underwood and John Legend um both of whom you know are you know mainstream popular artists but I think they both uh you know especially for instance John Legend I know he became primarily a musician through the church so it's kind of that. They're kind of, I think that song is a blurred, you know, instance of sacred and secular, um, just knowing their positionalities, at least. Um, So, yeah, I just found that really interesting. There's something about that umbrella genre that definitely seems to kind of play with those lines um, now and then, uh, you know, for sure. Um. And then the other section following this, uh, I thought this was really a cool section uh, entitled Around the World, you know, talks about how Christmas celebrations manifest in different regions, of course. So how do you see syncretism come into play with how Christmas is celebrated in a given local culture?
0: Yes, that's interesting as well. I guess I would want to uh, problematize that a little bit, and maybe that's because of my location in theology. It makes me more sensitive. Um, there's a, at least a, a tendency in a certain kind of theology for syncretism to mean that we have something pure and they are polluting it, and it becomes this very us and them sort of thing with a, with a moral ethnic superiority to it. So I guess I would begin by just pushing back and saying, uh, if there's syncretism, we are the syncretists as well. Uh, we've decided that, you know, the nativity happens with lots of snow, which, of course, is not what's going on in the Middle East. Um, and we've made uh, commercialism and consumerism central to Christmas, which is not uh, the nativity story. So I would start with what, what, what is syncretistic about uh, our location here in America but yeah, Christmas looks very differently in different parts of the world. Uh, and Latin America, they are certainly drawing upon uh, pre-colonial, uh, pre-conquest, pre-Christian traditions uh, of uh, dance and uh, song and multiple-day celebrations. And I think that chapter has great strength of showing this kind of just releasing of joy that has very distinctive. Uh, Manifestations that are different from other parts of the world. My personal favorite was reading about Japan because Christmas in Japan is just so different from anywhere else. It is a very big date holiday. And so it's kind of like Valentine's Day is in America. In Japan, you're supposed to think of romance and find a date. And then a favorite traditional quote unquote uh, Christmas meal in Japan is Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. I just thought, oh, this is really a tradition that has just taken its own direction in its own place.
1: You can't beat that, sitting around with a bunch of fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, and that was a really good point, um, too, about the term syncretic. I hadn't even thought about it, you know, with that power dynamic. So I I appreciate you kind of breaking that down a bit. Um, I think what I probably should have just said was the blending of, you know... Christmas with different locality if you will um in that way. So, but that was a really interesting section for sure in terms of seeing how um regionalism comes into play. Have you uh I know you're talking about you went over to Scotland um for some experiences, but have you been other places for Christmas and seen it firsthand?
0: I've lived in England, Scotland, Canada, and America. So they're all in the same kind of nexus of traditions and kind of touchstone cultural things. So I have not seen a very different kind of Christmas uh, from the one that I'm used to, but it is, you know, a little different in each of those places.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And then finally, going to the last section, the state and society, uh, you and the the contributors contextualize Christmas, you know, really within different civic aspects of the U.S. primarily. So if you could add a chapter on U.S. Christmas celebrations in 2020, going a little bit back to what we're talking about earlier, what might you discuss with maybe a 2020 addendum? You know, I'm thinking about. Again, COVID 19 impact on all this?
0: I would have liked to hope, uh, and and Christmas is a great time to hope, that Christmas becomes more meaningful to us than ever this year. You know, if a lot of our, even our our favorite Christmas songs and Christmas movies traditionally uh, come out of World War II, I think that's not an accident that when you're not taking for granted, that people are safe, that you're not able to meet with people you love. There are so many of those songs, we talked about music earlier, that that are, you know, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams, and songs about longing to be with people you can't be with, which is very relevant today. So I would hope for um, Christmas to be a time to very deliberately think about who do I love and how can I communicate love to them effectively and not take them for granted even if that is something different. I think, you know, people worry about, uh, again, the commercialism and consumerism. And uh, we have a small house. My wife and I think a a lot about, you know, if we got something, where would we store it? Where where would we put it? And so gifts can also be a burden that way of, I've been given this thing I don't have room for it. And my idea for this Christmas would be, at least for the adults in your life, if you wrote them a letter and said, here are three things I admire about you, and maybe a little story where I've seen you reflect this admirable trait that really impressed me. I think for most people, that would be a more meaningful gift than anything you could buy them. And you wouldn't have to store it. It doesn't take up any space. And yet it connects with what a true gift should do, which is to say, I've seen you. You're important in my life. I'm not taking you for granted, but I want you to know that I'm glad you're in my life and that I love you.
1: Yeah. Um, It sounds like maybe just kind of an a, the word care, you know, coming into play. Um, I think we've seen bits of that even uh, leading up to Christmas to some extent, you know. Um, I think that that would definitely be a good time of year to kind of tease that out more. I think when people need it more than ever, uh, it seems like. So that would be a really interesting... Um, edition. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking through the book with us today. And let me close with one more question for you. What other projects are you working on? I'm
0: deep into the research right now for a project on Anglican clergymen who became military chaplains during the First World War. So I wanna see how the war changed them and their ministry. I'm trying to really uncover what they thought about their ministry and the church and theology before the war, what they said during the war and then how the war might have changed their trajectory or reinforced things that they thought mattered before the war. But it does kind of uh, at least have a loop back to this project here because one of the most magical and fascinating things about the First World War is the Christmas Truce of 1914, which was done despite direct orders on both sides and in defiance of real risks of penalties by the hierarchy of the military on both sides because ordinary soldiers just couldn't imagine trying to kill somebody on the day in which they celebrate the Prince of Peace being born and decided that they would reach out and find the humanity of their enemies, and even um, do gestures of goodwill in the midst of a world war. So that's the project I'm working on now.
1: Yeah. Um, Are you thinking that'll be a book project?
0: Yes, I'm hoping
1: it'll be a full book, a single authored book. Excellent. I'll definitely look forward to checking that out. But Tim, thank you so much for, you know, joining us here on New Books and Celebration Studies. I really enjoyed talking with you
0: been an honor to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: No problem. And listeners, of course, we have to thank you also. We couldn't have this without you. Uh, Just as a quick recap, this is the end of an interview with Dr. Timothy Larson about the Oxford Handbook of Christmas published by Oxford University Press in 2020. This is Emily Allen here on New Books Network's special series, New Books and Celebration Studies.